0: live from west berlin it's the committee program with aron chowdhury julia doubleday forrest lovett yam mameli jevat castrati and yours truly jacopo castelletti we now join the show already in progress Oh my God, doing this last second as always because it's always, you know, crazy around here. And it turns out I need to go to Italy today and not next week. And so my whole plan is a messed around. But we do have a show uh, for you today and an announcement. And the announcement is actually that. Uh, Normally, we would be preparing to come off of hiatus for Epiphany Day Spectacular and then start from then on into Bastille Day, which is a normal season for us, what we have traditionally done. We are not going to be able to do that or don't think we're going to be able to do that this season. That is because there have been even too many elections, too much travel, uh, not even just for me, although certainly a lot for me but for everyone on the team. And so we have made the decision to Kind of uh, board up the windows at least until we can see what's going on. That does mean that we will stop putting out regularly uh, produced content or that we will not start putting out regularly produced content in January. It does mean we will be putting, turning off the Patreon. So if you are someone who, and bless you so much, uh, supports the show, uh, you will not be charged while this is going on because that sort of wouldn't be, that wouldn't be right. We have always delivered exactly. The number of episodes and the num- inside every season and the fact that we feel like we can't deliver that means that we don't want to try to do something half-assed. Now, that being said, there are things that are just so important. Like today, Julie is going to be coming on to talk about the ongoing uh, COVID pandemic. And there are, are going to be many things that are incredibly important. And so we will, whenever we can, uh, come out with a show. But because it's not a regularly produced expectation, that's not something that we feel okay turning on. Uh, the coffers and the accounts for. So so that is a thing that will be happening. And I don't know when we'll see you next. But we have a cool show tonight, which is, like I said, Julia Doubleday, the show's own, will come on and talk with us a lot about misinformation that's been going on around the COVID pandemic. And then we are going to be talking about All Quiet on the Western Front. Netflix has a version. And much like the Netflix version of many other classic things, it is not good. Not particularly good. And then we're going to watch Jack Frost, which is a Soviet children's film uh, that comes out this time of year, Christmas, New Year's, etc. Because I think this will come out next week, meaning today for you, but next week for me, meaning that it's sort of going to be a little more like Christmas is sort of thrown up all over everywhere. Basically everywhere in Europe it feels like that, like it's been, you know, painted with the Christmas crap everywhere. Uh, But it's going to be even more like that, so we can reflect on how the second world celebrated their christmas or as we call it in my house saturnalia thank you for being with us here tonight and look forward to seeing you on the flip side of some ads 1929. godine. Beobanka ima 15.950 štediša. Beograd 1955.
1: godine. U Beobanci štedi 200.000 ljudi.
0: 1980. godine.
1: Beograd ima milion i 400.000 stanovnika. Beograd banka 2.200.000 štediša. Koliko će na sutra biti u porodi si Beobanke... To zavisi i od vas. And five. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Were you introducing me? Or why are you counting down now?
0: I'm going to start doing the segment.
1: Yeah, you just started doing the segment. You said, I'm your host. Did I start you said, doing- I'm your host, and then you said five.
0: I'm, no, 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 no. I'm running it through in my head. I'm, you got to pre-visualize and pre-oralize. I didn't realize that you had to uh, practice saying your own name. This is, but- look. I, I'm it. practicing what I'm going to say. I used to do this every week, you know, and we haven't done this for a while.
1: That's true. I couldn't find my microphone. I couldn't find my microphone. That was. That That's one the, thing what, that was exactly the, what I meant. Yeah, so I had to put the thing together. It's in the bottom of my a closet. Oscar.
0: A lot of things had to happen, and the studio had to put together. There's now a big hole in the teleprompter. I don't know if you know about that uh, because it kind of sloped down, I guess, at some point in the last couple of weeks. Hmm. Who knows? Hmm. You have Who a knows, teleprompter? What you can say? How do you think I'm looking at you right now?
1: With your eyes?
0: (laughs) No, but like, there has to be something over the camera, because like, I'm clearly using a camera and not a laptop.
1: Okay. I don't know. I don't know, Mr. Worked for the President. I don't know about this stuff.
0: Okay, Javat, this is the banter. This was the gold, right there. That was the gold. Okay. He liked it because I mentioned he worked for the President, so. Hi. Welcome back to your committee program. I'm your host, Arun Chaudhary, and we have a very special deep dive with committee's own Julia Doubleday on COVID, the ongoing pandemic. Uh, in fact, one of the things I was struck by when speaking to this uh, with Julia the other day was she was quoting someone, and maybe you can even start here by talking to us about sort of this moment that we're at of someone saying, it's so strange how more people are dying now than they were during this certain stage of the pandemic. And you're like, Th- that defies well the logic of words.
1: So what she actually said was, you know, she, this was a mommy blogger article about how, oh my God, my kids have been sick over and over and over again. The kind of thing that really should be raising red flags for parents but they're being told this is totally normal Um, they've really bought into this scientifically inaccurate incorrect misinformation which is so-called immunity debt i will really dive deep Mm -hmm. into that and how it's not a thing so if you have been explaining away your children's um, ongoing continual sickness with the idea that um, they're just getting sick because they didn't get sick last year Again, not real, not true. No immunologists are behind this, quote unquote, theory, which has no scientific evidence behind it. But there is tons and tons of scientific evidence um, behind the idea of post covid immune deficiency, which we are seeing uh, confirmed over and over again all around the world. And the fact that that's not being communicated to the public is pretty clearly you know, to continue to defend the status quo where we're all just it's just normal. It's just normal. We're all going to be fine with five hundred to a thousand to two thousand uh, people dying in this country every single day of this disease. Um, And it's it's really criminal. But yes. So
0: let's situate, folks. Let's situate. folks. So one of the reasons that even we're having uh, a a bigger than normal kind of not just a closing statement where I say, hey, we're on hiatus and we're not doing a new season and we're shutting down the Patreon and all those scary, horrible things. Uh, the reason we're actually doing a much uh, bigger program around this is also to promote your next venture, which is a substack that you are primarily writing about misinformation, uh, bad science, bad policy, and bad outcomes with COVID and the ongoing pandemic. And so uh, you have written three articles for your substack, which, you know, please feel free to plug it as much as you want. But what are the subjects of those? How is how? Why are you picking this? Where are we at now? And forget all the scorekeeping, right? There's all the, as you say, there's all this politics, there's all this sort of, you know, people putting their political lives in front of people's actual lives. Just situate us in reality of the moment that we're in yes. for someone who's maybe not paying attention and isn't interested in the scorekeeping
1: part. Yes, it's really important for us to get back to reality and engage with what the science is finding Um, before i launch into a little bit about the the substack i just want to say that you know i know that i'm a random person online i'm not a doctor i'm not an immunologist but i am listening to those people i am listening to the researchers and the experts and if you have not if you have not been looking into the studies coming out about the long-term effects the post-covid effects and the cumulative effects of COVID infection I don't know why you would think that you have a better handle on what's going on than people who are doing those things. So you need to really reflect seriously about um, where you're getting the idea that COVID is safe to contract. And if the place you're getting that idea is from Joe Biden or um, New York Times journalists who are hell bent on getting people back in the office for ideological reasons, please take the time to go on PubMed and look at the actual studies, because this stuff is not even controversial anymore. We know this is a very dangerous disease. But so let me tell you a little bit about the substack. It's called the gauntlet. I chose that name, um, both because a gauntlet is, you know, something that is a, a, a period of trial, but it's also something you throw down to challenge people. And I really felt that We need to throw it on the gauntlet at this administration, at the left, at the left press, at everyone who has abandoned solidarity with disabled people, vulnerable people, not to mention participating in normalizing a status quo where vulnerable people are not safe to leave their homes. This is completely unacceptable. It is completely contrary to our values. And by the way, the average daily deaths this week in the US um, are at 500 per day. Um, it has never been the flu. It's still not the flu. And the majority of people dying right now are vaccinated. So please don't mm-hmm. buy into this mm-hmm. pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's not true. Many older people, vulnerable people are still dying in the acute phase, which is not the only thing we need to worry about with COVID. So the the gauntlet, uh, I have three articles up right now, like you mentioned. The first one is sort of, <laughs> right down the gauntlet, Joe Biden. Um, It's just about how Joe Biden very um, dramatically did a ceremony uh, right before he was sworn into office the night before his inauguration. They lit candles um, all around the reflecting pool, 400 um, 400 candles to commemorate 400,000 people who died of COVID under Trump. And we all agreed that this was a huge disaster. Um, And at that time, I was a bit uncomfortable with it because I felt that it was a lot of showmanship and potentially um, sort of using these people as political props. Um, But I hoped that I would be proven wrong and that they would have a really strong pandemic response. In fact, they were cynically using those dead people as political props, which is incredibly shameful in and of itself since Biden has taken office, 700,000 more people have died. I want to remind you that Joe Biden, while campaigning for office, declared that because 220,000 Americans had died on Trump's watch, Trump had no place in office and should resign, and that anyone who oversees that kind of death in that time period should resign. So by his own logic, he should have resigned Three times by now. I want to also say that, well, yes, Biden has been in office much much longer uh, than Trump. Uh, that death toll is almost twice Trump's death toll. So if you actually break out like the the average daily deaths by months that they were in office under Trump, I think it was like forty thousand a month, and under Biden, it's like thirty 000 to thirty-five thousand a month. So we have not seen any kind of significant reduction in that acute phase death toll. Contrary to what we've been told, it continues to rise apace. And again, as much as I hear people saying, oh, well now it's just a flu, now it's just a flu. I am very curious what metric they're using to determine it's just a flu. Because even in that acute phase, it's still killing 10 times more people than a flu would. So I think we're on track to have between 250,000 to 300,000 deaths in the US by the end of the year. Uh, a bad flu season might get up to thirty thousand. So it's nowhere near anything similar to what flu does, uh, even after the vaccination. Uh, the second article I wrote about um, it's called "Influential People," and I wrote it about a doctor uh, who is also a part of the COVID response in um, in Canada. I'm trying to remember which province it was. I think it might have been British Columbia, but they are having a a Mm -hmm. really, really, really severe pediatric hospital crisis in Canada. This is starting to happen everywhere. It is happening in the US. We have these concurrent RSV, flu, um, hand, foot and mouth, uh, COVID, of course, all of these concurrent massive, massive waves. Um, And actually, if Jack can share that, um, there's a a graphic that I have. Mm -hmm. Um, that shows how many kids are hospitalized right now in Canada versus previous years. Um, So if you're looking at this graph, what you see is that this cannot be explained by um, immunity debt. It cannot be explained by a sort of double cohort theory. We're well beyond two or three times um, the number of children in the hospital that we've ever seen before, and it's still rising. So that has also led to 48-hour wait times in pediatric um, emergency rooms, which I think is fair to say that's a collapse of the healthcare system. That's no longer a healthcare system in crisis. That is a system that is not operational because if you go to an ER and you cannot get seen for 45 hours, that means you're not in an ER. You are not getting emergency medical care. Um, Just a few days ago, a two-year-old died on the floor in an emergency room. Um, There were no beds. He died of the flu and i want to be clear that people with healthy immune systems children with healthy immune systems do not die of the flu and strep throat but that is what is happening right now so in british columbia um, six children are dead of the flu so far this season it is december 9th in a typical flu season they might have one death in the entire year so we infected these kids with covid with no idea of the long-term effects and we're seeing those long-term effects come home to roost and people are very reluctant to engage with it or acknowledge it, but it is well demonstrated in the scientific literature at this point that yes, COVID damages your immune system and your resistance to all other pathogens. Additionally, this strep A, sorry, let me just finish the strep A, Um, outbreak in the UK has now killed 16 children. Yesterday it was 15. A few days before that it was nine. Children, healthy children, do not die of strep throat. They have the immune systems of someone with a severely uh, compromised ability to fight infections. Um, So this article just um, uh, followed a doctor up there who gave a speech on tv and he really encouraged people to wear masks no mandate because that's not politically possible but can you please just wear a mask because of all the children dying like maybe think about it that night he went to a holiday gala for influential people and he was on the list of influential people for his role in fighting covid and he had no mask on so you know it's it's very disgusting for me to watch someone do that knowing what he knows about what's happening to children uh sorry but did you have a something you wanted to i just
0: wanted you to unpack for folks uh just to unpack the jargon of immunity debt because i think a lot of people just when they hear that they don't even know what it means and they just turn off and what is this purported theory uh who is yeah speaking of it just let's talk about it in real words with real okay
1: words. i will let me first just give you the sort of like brief summary of article three and then i'll dump i'll i'll, I'll jump right in
0: and you'll weave that in uh, weave no, no in. Yeah, i'll, yeah, I'll yeah, jump yeah.
1: right in and we'll do like a deep dive on that because that's really really crucial to understand and also to debunk so um the third article is was written in response to a very damaging poorly researched article that came out in the new republic where the author clearly had an axe to grind um trying to proclaim that long covid is not essentially not real you know she did a a little like both sides ism of you know i you know classic yeah like oh well some people say they found biomarkers but like what if you know then she used this case study of this woman who like you know clearly did have psychological problems and like thought she had long covid but didn't Um, that's that case study is not representative it's sort of like doing a huge profile of like a um, false rape accusation we know we get angry when that those things happen because there's no attention being put where it needs to be put which is this Rape culture, this crisis of sexual assault against women in this country and around the world, um, and then people choose to do this you know big, huge story about how dangerous it is for men to like yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. falsely get accused, which like is much, 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 much rarer. So in this case, it's a decision to highlight something that is unrepresentative to put forward a narrative that minimizes COVID. I also want to get in deeply about what long COVID is because we know a lot about it, actually. So the the framing, one thing to keep in mind when you see mysterious or, or we see really, really um, mm. soft language like brain fog, which is actually code for neurocognitive decline, um, we need to keep in mind that that is also minimizing language. We do have the information to know that this is a serious serious illness, and as socialists, as leftists, it's our job to really be drawing attention to this. So, I that inspired me to write an article, where the fuck is Jacobin? Where the fuck is current affairs? Where the fuck are these, you know, lefty allies um on this issue which is ongoing, which is a crisis, which is the greatest mass tragedy of our time they are writing articles about whether you've got mail a movie that came out 20 years ago is neoliberal I, I don't have words for what a failure it is that you're publishing that and nothing about COVID. Um, so we'll come back also to that. That's the th- the topic of the third one is why is the business press, and I'll dig into this as well, mm-hmm. why is the business mm-hmm. press out reporting the left on COVID? We have Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Fortune Magazine. And they often
0: do. Fi- actually, financial yeah. Times,
1: they have fantastic long covid coverage even medical coverage and the reason is they're worried about the economy so it's extremely embarrassing that people on the right are more worried about us as workers than we are worried about each other as human beings um but let's let yeah let's get into immunity debt because this is
0: really it's just a word that goes around it's really dangerous
1: it's really dangerous um i've been calling it ivermectin ivermectin (laughs) for liberals um because it is Pretty much the same thing that happened with ivermectin. Um, You know, you have a group of people who really, really want um, their uh, political leaders to have been correct. You have a group of people who is listening to only a few mainstream media outlets in the case of Um, Trump supporters, they were only listening to Fox News. And in the case of liberals, we have a more diverse group of publications, but generally they're going for CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, and they all are sort of continuing to prop up this idea that COVID is over, even though it's never been over. And it's, it's more of a crisis now, actually, than it's ever been before because of the very, very low awareness or understanding of what's going on, the lack of protections, the lack of testing. Um, we, are, we are actually in the most dangerous point of the pandemic, and that's something people really need to know. Um, so immunity debt. We are now for the first time because we're a year out from having mass infected all of the children, potentially repeatedly, I believe it's 90 percent of all US children have had COVID. Um, and many of them I'm sure have had it many times because we insist on sending them back to these, you know, cesspools of infection.
0: Incubation factories, yeah, Yes,
1: yeah. and people are finally noticing there's something wrong. Like that mom I was telling you who wrote the article that's like, it's so weird, my kid has never been this sick. I saw another mom posting um, on Twitter yesterday oh, well, no wonder my kid was feeling bad. We went to the ER. The doctor said he's never seen this before. They tested positive for seven concurrent respiratory infections. That's not normal. That's not a kid with a normal immune system. And I, when I say it's not normal, I mean the doctor said I've never seen this before. That should be a red flag. That should be a, a big red flag that something is wrong. So we're starting to see the chickens come home to roost on the fact that there is immune damage, damage done to your immune system after you have COVID. There's not a ton that we know about the long-term implications of this, but we do know that a disease that deletes T cells, that leaves you without naive T cells, that is harming um, really vital parts of your immune system like uh, CD4 cells, CD8 cells, and B cells, um, we know that this is extremely bad for you, and it really compromises your ability to um, fight off other infections. So there was a study. I want to get the name of the study right. Um, there's There's been a ton of studies, to be honest. Um, but in Nature Immunology, this made a lot of waves uh, a month or so back. Immunological dysfunction persists for eight months following initial mild to moderate SARS-CoV-2 infection. So... I'm talking about even in mild to moderate cases, and I'm also talking about long-term effects. So the issue there, um, and I I also want to side note, eight months was the length of the study. The immune damage was not alleviated at the end of eight months. That's just when the study ended. So to be clear, it's not like, oh, you have immune damage for eight months and then you're fine. You have immune damage for God knows how fucking long, but at least eight months. Um, And the issue here is that our let it rip plan, which i've said over and over again, will not continue because it just fucking can't and that's what the science says. Um our let it rip plan is that your kids are going to get it every 4 to 6 months. So let's think about this. Their immune system has been compromised. 4 to 6 months later, well within the window that we know it's still compromised, they get covid again. What do you think happens then? Their immune system is further damaged we are really really harming kids and we are seeing it right now um so let's get into immunity debt which is the ivermectin explanation in order to try to continue to keep this train running because it would mean acknowledging the severe effects of covid would mean um the biden administration and everyone that let this happen is now on the hook for really really massive uh i would call them crimes against humanity (laughs) you know killing kids i think that's bad um so they're they're just gonna try to come up with anything else it could be so when we look at what is getting blamed for these really really noticeable changes these really really huge um skyrocketing health issues um especially among people that uh have been continually exposed to covid um there's only two things it could be right because only two things have changed since 2021 a gigantic pandemic of a novel virus with unknown long-term implications the other was sometimes we wear masks so oh and the vaccine (laughs) so you either have to blame covid or you have to blame the interventions and since they cannot blame covid they're defaulting to trying to pin everything on these interventions which by the way is incredibly dangerous because you are creating um social rejection of masks and vaccine do you understand What an asshole you have to be to inherit the Trump pandemic response. Not only continue it, make it worse, take away protections, take away money, take away tests, and then turn the liberals against masks and vaccines. You inherited half of a country that was willing to take these measures and you threw it out. You made it worse. I mean, it's way worse than it was under Trump because now nobody's doing anything. immunity debt is this idea that because the kids were so well protected for the last 2 years because as we all know every kid wore masks everywhere they wore them playing with their friends they wore them to school they didn't take them off they um you know they didn't do anything social because their parents were really protecting them you know they didn't go travel for the holidays they didn't uh eat indoors they didn't do indoor dining no of course not they were perfectly protected so they didn't encounter any sort of pathogens um and because of that that has made them much more sick let's unpack a few things that are wrong with this right off the bat parents didn't do shit to protect their kids let me just start there a few parents some parents mask their kids consistently most parents I know kind of did it for a while maybe in 2020 certainly not in 2021 and certainly not they weren't banned from indoor dining maybe some people were in 2020 but again that's two years ago so you would expect to see an immunity debt effect uh taking hold in 2021. well also look a really great case study is Sweden so Sweden decided very early in the pandemic we're going to do let it rip literally from day one we don't care we just got to get on with our lives indoor dining is more important than people you know getting to live their lives so They never did any restrictions of any kind, you know, they're sort of like this experiment in herd immunity because their idea was we're gonna get herd immunity, we're gonna be fine. From an early, early point, we knew herd immunity could not be possible with COVID because of the way that it damages your immune system. Um, And because of the way it evades and harms T cells, which are what you need to fight infections and to remember pathogens. Um, They never did anything. And guess what they're having? Massive, massive, massive wave of children being hospitalized with RSV, and there is no possibility that that could be immunity debt. And there is only one other explanation, and it is post COVID immune deficiency. I'll also dive in,
0: which is quite the opposite. Yes, which would reverse immunity debt.
1: I'll also dive in a little bit. Um, Actually, there's one graphic I also want to share here, which is a chart of showing um, this cohort of kids who were in the hospital with um, RSV. Essentially, what it shows is that this cohort, which I think is six to twelve, I remember six to twelve months and then twelve to twenty four months, maybe. it shows not that they were protected from infection but that this cohort of kids was very infected with covid and the the spike in rsv cases pretty much matches exactly to the spike huge spike of covid uh cases among children uh of this age so it's right there you have the correlation um, but i do want to like just backtrack and talk a little bit more about how immunity debt even if it were applicable here which it's not does not exist so um the idea behind immunity debt was essentially a sort of corruption of the hygiene hypothesis the hygiene hypothesis which is controversial itself says that if you encounter um bacteria and um which you know really just means good bacteria it's basically the idea that like let your toddler play in the dirt because then they will encounter more bacteria Mm -hmm. and that helps Mm -hmm. their immune system um over the long term um few issues with this one there is a difference between microbes and pathogenic microbes (laughs) so microbes like might be found in the dirt are are not illnesses um what they're saying is that you should uh, expose your kids to um environmental bacteria that are not negative for them and not harmful to them no doctor says make sure you go out and give your kid every respiratory infection so they can be the most healthy that's the complete opposite of reality um additionally you know again uh microbes are not viruses respiratory viruses are pathogen pathogens and you do not want to the more that you contract them the worse it is for you as always we don't want our kids sick that should be obvious the less sick you are the less sick you are the more sick you are the more sick you are we don't need to um it's it's this weird you know double speak of like well you have to get sick to not be sick it makes Absolutely no sense. Um, I would also note with the strep A outbreak that really throws a wrench in this um, so-called explanation because you don't get immunity to strep. It's a bacteria. It's not like the flu where if you got the flu, then a few weeks later, you don't get the flu. Um, It is something that you can get at any time. And that wouldn't explain the, the increased severity where children are actually dying of strep throat many children dying of strep throat and i assume that number is going to keep climbing unfortunately um lastly you know about immunity debt i want to say that it's a real shame that we're seeing new york times and even justin trudeau a few other people starting to buy into this that's where i say it it crosses over into ivermectin territory because i'm sure that they have the resources to know um you know that this isn't real Uh, any any immunologist that you that you um, follow or ask for an explanation of this they will just straight up tell you this was invented in 2021 it's not real it's not a concept in immunology and it's incredibly dangerous. And I think the reason it actually, to me it actually climbs well beyond ivermectin in terms of danger to the public because ivermectin was really only believed by a small subset of people. And it was really only harming the people who were eating horse paste. Um, this theory, theory, uh, <laughs> the implications of it are absolutely so destructive. They're so destructive because the implications are not only that it's fine to get COVID, but that is actually good to get COVID. And that what hurts your children is doing basic measures to try to protect them from illness. This is essentially the state telling you, you must make your kids ill to make them healthy. Um, And again, this is absurd on the face of it, but people are, I think they are very much afraid to acknowledge that they may have harmed their own children. And I think that that is something Mm -hmm. that is very hard psychologically to overcome. And it's much easier to just say, "Well, well, I heard about this thing, this immune debt thing. There was a piece. Fortunately, we're starting to see more mainstream media debunk this. There was a piece in Salon yesterday. The title is "Let me see if I can find it." Well, anyway, there's a big piece in Salon yesterday that essentially was just like, "Here's why immunity debt's a bunch of bullshit," and we (laughs) interviewed a bunch of immunologists. Uh, There's one other thing I want to mention just to kind of keep clear what we're talking about. There is a, a similarly named concept called the immunity gap that some other immunologists uh, sort of have started using. The immunity gap uh, is, is different from immunity debt and, and does exist. Immunity debt implies that if you don't get strep A this year, if you get strep A next year, it's going to be really bad. We know that's not true because most people don't get strep A every year. Most people don't get flu every year. Most people don't get RSV every year. It makes No sense to say that if you don't get RSV flu and strep every year, you're going to die of it next year. Of course, this is not true. Um, But immunity gap is simply the idea that, yes, uh, flu cases and RSV cases and these kind of things were low in 2020, somewhat low in 2021, although that's a little bit hinkier. Basically, in some places, RSV cases were actually higher Um, in certain parts of Canada. At the point where tons and tons of kids were going to the hospital, which means that it was not the number of cases, it was the severity of cases that increased. I think at this point, we now actually are well above with with more and more cases, which isn't surprising um, but you know, looking at last year it's it's not true that nobody got sick last year, and it that's what's hard for me to understand about parents under uh, uh, accepting this explanation because i'm like. Your kids did get sick last year. Everyone I know who has kids, their kids got sick in the last year. So how are you accepting this? It's like, oh, it's because my kids didn't get sick last year. You you know they did. So who are you going to believe? Me or your own eyes? You know, like it's just, it's very, it's very weird. Um, immunity gap implies that we would have a double or triple cohort effect in the hospitals, meaning that because kids were somewhat protected from flu, more kids might be getting the flu. In that case, you might expect to see numbers that were more like double or even triple. Um, But two things, you would not see increased severity. There's no reason why you would see increased severity. Secondly, (laughs) um, not only would you not see increased severity, um, but uh, in terms of how high these numbers are, it's well beyond two or three cohorts i mean that that graph that i that i showed earlier it's it's like nothing that's ever been seen before i mean that's like at least 10x i don't know how how high it's going to go but it's still going up and my own feeling knowing what we know about covid is that not only are more children going to be dying of strep and of flu and of rsv and of every other you know, mild, formerly mild disease under the sun because their immune systems are damaged. Um, But we are going to see our hospitals overwhelmed this winter like never before because we also have a gigantic COVID wave incoming with not a mask in sight, not a mandate in sight. Nobody knows what's going on. And it is a complete failure of the left to not have even slightly tried to push back on the normalization of mass death.
0: Um, do you have any hope in the? what, I mean, I don't exactly even know what I, you're looking at it from much closer than I am. But New York, I saw, was recommending not only masks indoors but even in outdoor crowded situations. Is this the first kind of? It's a Who is thinking about this? Even I hadn't heard anyone um, else even talking about it. It's a
1: domino, but then again, um, actually, LA was the first. So LA, I think, is actually going to reinstate indoor masks because they have, you know what. <laughs> They made this um really ridiculous change to the way we were tracking covid cases uh, over at the cdc where in under the prior map 94 percent of all counties right now would need to be under mask mandate and now it's like i don't know 10 to 20 percent of counties are, are starting to get into the high case territory we have to understand that what used to be high case levels is now a low case according to the cdc so they've completely they're gaslighting you they give you a completely different map um but even with that crazy map which has this crazy high threshold um for masks to be introduced they passed they passed it in la they passed it in new york um and keep in mind these cases are drastically 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 underreported at this point um so in la yes they are talking they're probably going to bring the mask mandate back because they've crossed into high transmission uh territory in new york um they're dragging their feet What they put out was merely a recommendation. It is not a mandate. And what is needed is a mandate. Mandates are very effective. So many people, and let me just say one thing to you people, grow the fuck up. So many people will wear a mask if it's the rule. And they won't wear a mask if other people around them aren't wearing a mask. Because apparently they're really concerned about peer pressure way more than children dying. And honestly, again, grow the fuck up. Man up wear a fucking mask like i i we're in such a crisis and the bare minimum you can fucking do is wear a mask i'm not asking for anything super drastic like i know these people are still going to indoor dine i'm not but a lot of people are going to i know these people aren't going to make any kind of massive lifestyle changes but when you're in the grocery store when you're on public transit you are, let me say this in no uncertain terms, you are participating in making it impossible for disabled, vulnerable, and elderly people to be in public spaces. If you are on the metro and someone needs to get to their doctor's appointment, who has cancer or who has a kid with cancer, you are making it impossible for them not to get exposed in those environments. As leftists, the bare minimum we can do is to wear a high quality, that means N95, or kn95 uh, fitted mask in public spaces where we know that disabled people are i saw recently someone saying well you can choose to wear a mask if you're going to be around disabled people or immune compromised people let me tell you something 25 percent of all americans are disabled or immunocompromised and every single person in this country knows someone or interacts with someone who is and not only that every single day when you get on the metro unless you're doing a Huge medical history of every single person you encounter. I guarantee you there's someone on that train that should not be contracting COVID. So do your part, stop complaining, and shut the entire fuck up. Because quite frankly, wearing a mask is easy. It's not hard. And I I know a lot of people also just aren't up to date on what COVID is doing. And that's why they're not masking. And I'm, you know, I understand that. And I hope that you'll get under, up to date with what's going on. You don't have to trust me. Just look at the medical literature, and you'll make the decision to protect your neighbors. Um, but if, you're, if you know that information, and you're still choosing to say, well, me, me not wearing a mask is more important than you being able to visit your doctor or your kid with cancer to not get exposed to COVID, you're not on the left. You have no place in this movement.
0: Well, I mean, we're you know besides being on the left, we are also international. Uh, I believe the right wing calls us globalists, whatever it is. But we are people who are concerned international solidarity. Uh, and you are specifically someone who's following these things. You talked about the business press coverage mm-hmm. of COVID. Mm-hmm. What about the international press's coverage of China's uh, reaction to COVID? That's a shame, uh, especially in the last week where we have seen some movement it's a shame it's
1: really a shame because i believe that china made the decision it made because of the long-term immune damage effects that we have seen documented since 2020 i want to be
0: which is continuing to pursue zero COVID. right i
1: want to and i want to be clear that this is not new findings we have known since 2020 that this is damaging immune systems um It's really a shame because they're being bullied out of it uh, by the entire international community because capitalism must we must have grist for the mill and we just couldn't leave them alone. We couldn't leave them alone. And um, they're definitely loosening up uh, pretty significantly. I mean, they still have a lot more in place than we do. But um, I think there was a quote from him yesterday that was like, it doesn't matter how right we are. If the people want to jump into the fire, we have to follow. Um, and you know I think zero
0: I hadn't saw that that's an interesting quote actually
1: yeah I mean I think it just shows
0: there's only so much power we have I think well I think Uh, it
1: shows that they are actually responsive to the public in a way that it's been completely misrepresented over here that people didn't want to do any lockdowns of course there were issues with lockdowns of course it's hard to be in quarantine people don't like being in quarantine Usually when quarantines are implemented historically, you don't do a public approval poll about that because it's an issue of security and national health. Like the fact that like.
0: I mean, I would say things coming out of the BBC, The New York Times were astonishing though, right? Like they would have multiple stories on someone who wasn't able to see their dog or something, you know, like these sort of really. Uh, cloying human interest stories that were meant to undermine the idea of zero COVID policy. And I don't even mean this last yes. month. I mean you the know, entire time. Many. The months. entire time.
1: Yeah. I one of my uh, one of the most really obvious pieces of propaganda I saw was in the New York Times. You know, I always just shudder when I see talk of the deadly zero COVID policy or the you know yeah yeah exactly I, like say that again, man, slowly because. We've killed 1.1 million people in this country. And you're talking about incidents where like five to 10 people died. Those things are tragic. In no way have they committed mass murder of their own citizens like we have. And the fact that like you continue, you know, they were repeating that there was a protest chant in China that um, they want to go to the movies, which I don't know if it's true or not. You want to know who else hasn't been to the movies in three years? Me, because I can't. Because there's an out of control raging pandemic that, if you go to the movies and you contract it, you are at very high risk for vascular events. You're at very high risk for post COVID immune deficiency. You're at very high risk for damage done to your endothelium and uh, microclots in your blood, which we can get into later. Uh, that's not a functioning society. That's a society where you are purposely mass infecting everybody, you're not protecting them. Um, this is it won't continue this way, but um, to think that we're like on the right track, seeing the kind of sickness, the level of sickness that we're already seeing this early in the season, um, it's just absurd on its face. But yes, so the, the worst propaganda I saw was they did a piece where they had a, there was a bus who was transporting some ill people to COVID quarantine, which again is where they take patients, give them medical care and isolate them from the rest of society, which is generally what you wanna do with a level three um, pathogen and um the bus crashed and the people on the bus some of the people on the bus died and the whole article was like china's COVID policy is so deadly they should be rethinking it because of this bus crash and to me i was like that's like saying a school bus crashed in the u.s so we should rethink sending kids to school like that literally has nothing to do like that's an accident a tragic accident literally nothing to do with the fact that like they've saved about six million people at this point i think if they, i think if they had our death rate it would be four to five million actually not to not to oversell only four to five million deaths have been averted so far um so yeah fuck them
0: walk us through these last two graphs that you thought were illustrative uh for Mm. us uh in this moment okay hold on let me
1: um let me pull this up real quick i think we do need to get a little into the the um
0: Heart, yeah, heart, heart, attack. Time, so. heart attack time so so i think definitely get into the let's talk about yeah let I mean, we, no reason not to talk about that right now if you don't want to i think you know when we're saying that you are left weaker i think there's a very specific ways that are helpful and evocative for people to understand what that actually means okay. And i think these mini clots definitely at least they reach me okay when people start talking about them i'm like oh okay, so let's yeah. um
1: Let's do two more, two more little deep dives, and we may go a little bit over, but I just, I think it's really crucial to get this information into people's heads, into their ears, to at least giving giving them a jumping off point of what we're looking at. So first I wanna talk about long COVID. Long COVID has been portrayed as like, what is it, is it fatigue? No, at this point we have, we've studied it so much. We know what it looks like, we know what the biomarkers are. So here are some of the biomarkers they've been able to um find and and are now able to look at unfortunately these are not routine tests so a lot a lot of the issue is that long COVID patients go to a doctor they go to specialists they go to the er and they say hey we did all the normal tests we didn't find anything so you're fine meanwhile long COVID patients are like not able to walk down the street they're like fainting randomly many of them are bed bound um you know and people are accusing them of this being psychological because that there's a long history of doing that with chronic illness in this country sort of attributing it to you must be crazy i think the one silver lining here is that it's so many people who have this now that like Mm -hmm. it's becoming undeniable of course all these people didn't randomly go crazy especially because most of the people contracting this They're not worried about COVID. They don't think they're going to get long COVID. It's not like there was any sort of like psychological trigger that they're like looking out. The
0: hypochondriacs aren't getting COVID. No, I'm not getting it. You know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: But so uh, here's some of the things they found. There is significant damage to the endothelium, which is the lining of your blood uh, blood vessels, and if you're Wondering whether I'm pissed that I had to learn that because I didn't even like high school biology. Yes, I fucking am. I don't want to be learning any of this stuff. Um, But because the endothelium is damaged, which again means that all throughout your body, your blood vessels are now damaged, not functioning properly. Um, The way the body attempts to heal that is by clotting. So increasing the clotting factor in your your blood. Because because usually if you have a cut or an injury, it's like, okay, we'll just clot this. Um, the issue is you can't repair the endothelium with blood clots, and instead what happens is these tiny clots just build up and build up. This causes so many issues. So for one thing, um, capillary rarefication, that's when uh, basically your capillaries just don't work anymore. So this is decreasing blood blood, th- blood flow throughout the body, including in the brain, including in the lungs, including in the extremities. Um, And that is one of the things that that leads to that uh, constant fainting, fatigue, exhaustion. They have very poor circulation. Um, Another thing that happens with the the microclots is that they actually can um, develop into larger clots as they sort of like stick onto each other. Um, So we're seeing a huge, huge spike in um, DVT, deep vein thrombosis, a huge spike in Uh, all kinds of vascular effects. So that includes heart attacks, strokes, um, blood clots, and heart disease, heart failure. All all of these things are being brought on during post-COVID. Actually, I have the numbers here about the risk, your risk of heart attack, how much it goes up Mm
0: -hmm. after Mm
1: -hmm. um, a COVID infection. And I want to be clear that this is actually not just long COVID. And
0: pulmonary, too. Pulmonary,
1: yes, there is also pulmonary damage. it's a multi-organ disease. So when I say it's, it's having these vascular effects, keep in mind it's having effects on every organ. So we have spiking cases of liver disease, kidney disease, also of diabetes, so um, and and of cancers, which goes back to the suppressed immune system. So uh, thirty days between thirty days and a year after, this is a recent study. Between thirty days and a year after recovery from COVID even in mild cases, survivors were 52% more likely to have a stroke, 63% more likely to have a heart attack, and 72% more likely to develop heart failure. Um, So some of these people who are having these heart effects may or may not have uh, symptoms of ongoing COVID, so like post-COVID symptoms, long-COVID symptoms. We're not sh- we're not sure why some people uh, seem to have like the the microclotting effect, and why some people just seem to be fine, and then they just dropped out of a stroke or a heart attack. Um, I want to sidebar on the strokes and heart attacks and say that this is really well beyond debate. We know for sure that it drastically, drastically spikes your risk of vascular event the year, at least a year following COVID. Um, And what we're seeing is we are seeing that reflected in the excess mortality data. So in Australia, they just came out and said their excess mortality is 13% higher than pre-pandemic levels. And they're like, we can't fully explain it because it's not all COVID does. Uh, I can explain it. Uh, It is the post-COVID effects, including heart attacks, strokes, cancers, diabetes, and liver failure kidney failure everything um but uh actually in that article i want to i want to also stress that 13 percent is not a normal it's not a normal uh just Mm -hmm. like variation what they said in the article was that one to two percent is the most they've ever seen and like the highest is you know like the worst flu season ever it was a two percent excess mortality so this is it's actually along with the business press it's the actuaries that are really ringing the bells here it's just the the book the book pusher like accountant people who are like this data is really fucking weird so like it it's you know strange times and strange bedfellows but but that is where we're getting that data is from like life insurance employees that are like our life insurance company is going to go out of fucking business because everyone's dying at a very early age um sorry let me circle back to uh the the heart and blood issues so that i did want to share a photo um that shows what blood in a post-covid long covid patient looks like um, so in this photo, you'll see, this is shared by uh, Dr. Wes Ely, who's an ICU doctor at Vanderbilt. He's also an expert who studies COVID and long COVID. He's been sharing images like this for awareness. This is a patient who is actually on anticoagulants at the time that their blood was taken. Um, and you can see that it's incredibly tacky and sticky, which um, you know uh, indicates that there's this high level of clotting in their blood. So mm-hmm. a disease mm-hmm. that turns your blood into glue is not a cold, it's not a flu. This has nothing to do with those things. um, And you don't want to get it. And specifically, to head right into that other chart, you don't want to get it multiple times. So the last chart Mm -hmm. I want to show you is um, this is a recent study where this has been confirmed a few times, but this was a a really big study where they showed that your risk of any negative outcome, that includes hospitalization, long COVID, heart attack, stroke, anything that could happen post-COVID, it increases, and of course death, it increases with each infection. This is the opposite of what we would see with a typical disease like a flu or a cold. Um, if you were to contract something you've already had, you have some immunity built up. Mm-hmm. I think if I were to name one piece of misinformation that's been absolutely central to um, constructing this completely unscientific COVID response. It's that I believe that Biden and the people around him do not understand at this point that herd immunity is not possible. Long term immunity is not possible. Hybrid immunity, not possible. Natural immunity, not possible. This is a disease that attacks your T cells. It attacks your ability to be able to fight future pathogens, including uh covid in the future so when you get that second infection your risk of a worse outcome is now higher when you get that third infection it's higher than it was for the second infection
0: and the sooner the worse yeah
1: and so on and so on but i i just really need everyone to hold a couple of concepts in their head right now to really understand why i say let it rip will not continue i don't say that in the sense that it's bad it's negative we should organize against it it's immoral all those things are true i say it in the sense that the science and the math says we will not continue doing it because it's just not possible for society to run this way so essentially what i'm saying is covid carries a very high risk of um, contracting long COVID. Right now, we think it's somewhere Mm -hmm. between 10 to 20%. I want to also stress that we are still really unclear about who actually has long COVID and who doesn't. It may be that long COVID is merely uh, the presence of viral persistence. So when we think of viral persistence, you want to think of HIV or HPV. These are things you contract. They don't cause problems at first. Later down the road, they cause very severe health outcomes in the case of hiv it causes acquired immune deficiency syndrome in the case of covid what we're seeing um, not only all of these multi risk of organ failure multi-system effects we're seeing something similar to what happens when people develop acquired immune deficiency we're seeing uh because that virus is persisting in your organs Uh, the same way HIV does where the immune system cannot get to it. The immune system is activated. It knows there's a pathogen in the body and it goes around trying to fight everything, which leads to autoimmunity, but it can't find what it actually needs to find the virus. It actually needs to clear Uh, in doing so. You ultimately uh, destroy your immune system. That is what happens in long term HIV uh, infection you end up exhausting it's called t-cell exhaustion your t-cells are now exhausted so you can't fight off anything so i want to be clear i think that people will find it extremely scary and also they'll probably just dismiss it as fear-mongering again i would encourage you to do this reading yourself instead of just assuming it's fine um I wanna be really clear that while we don't know the number of people who have viral persistence, and we don't know the amount to which they may be able to clear that that virus at some point, that's what happens with HPV, so that's a hope. Um, but when we're making public policy, and I'm talking about a disease that has the potential to persist in your blood, cause long-term immune derangement, which leaves you completely un- unable to fight other pathogens we must take the worst case scenario as our starting point, because if we don't, we cannot afford to be wrong about this. And um, we're, we're just leaning into like, well, hopefully it's not true. That's not public policy, that's not scientific. Um, what we are seeing right now completely bears out that this immune damage is very, very real.
0: So Bolsonaro, you're saying is not gonna be a healthy man he is certainly not
1: going to be a healthy man no oh oh so uh, sorry i want to i want to sorry i must i must wrap up my my point um let me just say this hold a few thoughts in your head right now covid is very 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 contagious very 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 common and right now the game plan is for you and your children to get it two to three times every year which by the way is way too much even if it didn't cause long-term effects I would not want to have COVID three times a year uh but it does COVID causes long-term effects which are extremely scary and which we do not fully understand but we at least know that it leads it leaves you vulnerable to other infections Uh, three every single time you get COVID your risk of poor outcome goes up your immune system is further damaged and you are more at risk for a worse outcome. So when you think about those three ideas at once, explain to me what the long-term strategy is here, because even these motherfuckers who are healthy after having COVID once or twice, that doesn't mean shit. Your risk is going up with each infection. How does the economy function when every single person in the country, multiple times every year, uh, moves further and further toward disabling illness, hospitalization, Poor outcome and long term damage to their immune system, not to mention their vascular system and their heart, uh, it doesn't add up. And that is the bottom line. I think people really have trouble accepting it because it means we're going to have to make a lot of changes and they don't want to do that. So, you know, the one thing people have been defaulting to recently is it's the vaccine, it's the vaccine. I really can't stress enough how many studies confirm it's not the vaccine, and if you're unvaccinated, these effects are way worse, not better. Like, I've seen a few crazy people on Twitter saying, vaccinated people aren't dying. Well, they're dying. They're dying at a much higher rate. Or Sorry, unvaccinated. Both both of them are dying. Unvaccinated people are dying. Vaccinated people are dying. Unvaccinated people, proportionally to how many people there are in the population, die much more frequently, including of these heart effects. Um, but there was recently an anti-vaxxer documentary that came out called um, Died Suddenly, and it was documenting all of these sudden okay. deaths that are happening. All-
0: the name's a little on the nose, I have to say. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, we can't all be art house <laughs> directors, but um, uh, it was documenting all of these heart attack strokes that we know are happening. Uh, And the rebuttal in the press was just like, oh, this isn't real. That's not helpful. You are pouring gasoline on anti-vaxxers by not coming out and saying, no, it is not the vaccine. It is COVID. It is post-COVID. We know for a fact that your risk of heart attack and stroke goes up significantly after each COVID infection. That is what needs to be the headline. Because they're not willing to admit their failures or to start attracting attention to the fact that COVID never ended, and that it's, we're in a worse position than ever. They're just letting this anti-vax stuff go wild. So they would much rather um, the entire public become anti-vaxxers than that we stop showing up to work and purposely reinfecting ourselves with this illness because that is less disruptive to them.
0: And I mean, look, and it's uh, uh, a small public. – I'm a humble public relations man, so just to add to the politics on the bottom of this horrible policy outcome is the fact that we have made a kind of wellness anti-vax alliance a permanent political faction and force for no reason. We've created a real, real dangerous monster that is interesting in america in the kind of california Marion williamson kind of you know neck of the whatever but is also interesting here in europe very specifically in places like austria and southern germany and places where we've talked to our guests about eco-fascism and things this is actually feeding that fire
1: i and i think you know i had parents who used to be very pro-vax liberal parents messaging me i heard the vaccine causes heart attacks I don't really understand the mindset where you just hear that and you don't like look into it at all, but apparently. You're like, that doesn't
0: sound. That, yeah. Not only does that not sound right, it sounds like everything everyone's ever said that's super. But
1: right. I, I did send her a bunch of studies that are like, here's, you know, that there is a low risk of myocarditis, which is a mild outcome in some young men, and that risk is nine times higher uh, for post COVID. So, like, if your options are get the vax or get COVID, get the fucking vax, man. Get the fucking vax. So, um, and and get boosted. Oh, one one other really 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 crucial piece of information for people to know: these issues that I'm talking about, where COVID is good at attacking and evading T cells, it is interfering with the vaccine's long-term effectiveness. So when we first got vaccinated, the hope was that it would give it would um, give us antibodies, but then it would also start to build a T cell memory, T cell immunity that would give us long um durable protection against COVID. two things have happened since then that have continued to decrease the efficacy of the vaccine one is because of the completely uncontrolled spread of this disease we have new variants popping up left right and center every every few days there's a new one right now we're heading into a new wave with uh five new dominant variants uh bq11 bq1 and XBB, which is completely resistant to every monoclonal because we've continued to let it uh, spread and mutate around the tools that we that we once had. Um, and so that is that is one thing that has compromised the, effic- the e- efficacy of the vaccine. We did get the new booster. You should get it. You must get it. Get it. Um, that's the bivalent booster. It is formulated for strains up to BA.5 and it came out right at the end of the BA.5 wave. It's not formulated for the new strain. So it's kind of effective. It's certainly a lot better than the first shot. And this is the other thing we need to talk about is the really, really rapid waning of these shots. So what we found is that Mm -hmm. while they do induce an antibody uh, response, just like infection, it does not induce that T cell response we were supposed to see. And we do think this has to do with its ability to hide from T cells uh, and mess with T cells. Uh, So what that means is if you look at the CDC's own vaccine efficacy data, what you'll see is they looked at, um, you know, before two weeks after vaccination where it's not fully kicked in, and then two weeks to four months, which is when it's the most effective, and then after four months. Um, And in the case of people who had received a third booster, so this is even beyond the first two shots, which most people never even got one booster. Four months after you have received your third, your first booster, your third shot, your risk of hospitalization is reduced 29% versus an unvaccinated person. That's four months. Most people haven't had a vaccine in two years. So what I am saying to you, is that given the rapid waning of antibody protection, people who were vaccinated a year or two ago are essentially unvaccinated. So when I say we're going into a winner that's going to be a lot worse than any other winner, I'm not merely saying that because we don't have protections and masks. I'm saying that because the vast majority of people in this country don't know it's a risk, don't know they're at risk, and don't know their vaccine doesn't work for shit anymore because they got it two years ago. Um so yeah prepare for a winter where you're not going to be able to access healthcare stay safe wear a mask get a HEPA filter do all of the basic things that can protect you from these illnesses and protect your children from these illnesses uh because you are not going to be want to be the guinea pig that is dealing now with the the effects that may persist for the rest of your life
0: and if i could add one more thing onto your list i would say also subscribe to the gauntlet substack newsletter where Julia Doubleday, the show's own, will be providing you with the facts and the figures. She is reading many things. So, that so You many only things. have to read so a few things. things.
1: Thank you. Yes. Oh.
0: And you'll come back and you'll talk to us soon. Uh, we don't know when and how that will all be, but, uh, you know, especially now that you're putting out this regular content, it's sort of like me with those movie reviews I do. You know, it's like... Hmm you have to make it into multiple kinds of content. Sure, right? yeah. So I mean, like, I have a few... <laughs> if you're already writing something, even just speaking it out loud into a video is helpful. I, yeah,
1: yeah, I have a few friends who absolutely refuse to read. Um, so I'll just I'll send yeah. them this. So will be like, so this is basically so what
0: When the article this. comes in, We'll yeah, yeah. You'll come back on. We'll do this. I'll do a quick review of something else. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And there's- but this was fun, and it was nice to see you, even though it's bad news and we're all going to die. Yeah, uh, pretty much. <laughs> the committee program still feels like a comfortable, happy place where ideas... <laughs> are expressed before they fall right outside the camera range and onto the ground. Indeed,
1: indeed. Uh, well, thank you for having me and giving me the platform to talk a little bit about all of this. It's uh, it's it's good to be able to do that. And I think we covered a lot of ground. There's a few other things we didn't get to, and I'll save it for the next one. <laughs>
0: De de todos los del mundo. Hi and welcome back to the Committee program. I'm your host Tarun Chaudhary, and this is Committee at the Movies. And today we will be talking about the Netflix version alongside the two Hollywood versions of All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, I was asked to write this by the International Magazine, where I have written several other things that we have done on the show together, the Orphanage, I think Chernobyl, the HBO series, uh, and this is another one of those, so I will read it to you now. All Quiet on the Western Front, the quintessential World War I novel written by Eric Maria Remarque serves as an archetype in the transatlantic world. The pacifist book shows rather than tells the gruesome details of war through frank observational writing. Juxtaposing horror and humor, industrial killing machines and natural beauty, sacrifice, and a heaping helping of needless slaughter against the backdrop of an old-fashioned society eager and even aching for war. You've all likely written a sentence much like the one above for a book report. It was always beneficial for us the protagonists were German. It made them all the more abstract and hopeless, a safe place to criticize what would be harder or less safe to imagine objecting to in one's own society. And All Quiet on the Western Front is ubiquitous. It was a huge hit when it came out in 1929 and has never slowed down, other than occasionally being banned here and there. It is in the backpack of every 7th grader west of Strasbourg and north of the Rio Grande. It spawns an American film in 1930 and a major television event in 1979. Both, as we will discuss, are highly regarded. It is to this formidable pile that Netflix has decided to insert a -a two-and-a-half-hour technical whiz-bang of a movie that adds some valuable elements to the conversation, not only because it is a film adaptation in the German language, but also because it is the only released version since the consolidation of the national security state after the attacks on Al-Qaeda on the United States in September eleventh, two 2001, which had a profound effect both on the culture industry of our times as well on ourselves as an audience. This is the synthesis and the antithesis of the dialectic at the heart of understanding these films. What are we getting from these films? Who are we getting that from, and what do we bring from ourselves to the viewing of these films, and what informs that, that process of us bringing this is the critical work we're going to do together in these next few minutes as we talk about All Quiet on the Western Front. The earliest adaptation of the book was released only a year actually after publication in 1930. Lewis Milestone's Oscar-winning All Quiet on the Western Front is an extremely faithful adaptation, even including real war veterans in the production. It is still an excellent film and well worth watching. The style is reminiscent of some of what many German directors were playing with in Berlin and would continue when they fled to the U.S., that is, observational shots through doorways, windows, and other aggressive POV stances. The film sticks with the narrative and sticks with the second company at the muddy front, in hospital beds, back home in tidy German villages. This film would have struck viewers at the time as extremely earthy, authentic, and innovative. But while these techniques went on to be used by many, notably Italian neorealists, this isn't a strong strain in Hollywood dramatic films. Why? Because this is a pre-code film, perhaps even the pre-code masterpiece. By this we mean a production made in the brief period of sound film before the studios bonded together and imposed the Hays Code of self-censorship to avoid actual government censorship roughly between 1929 and 1930. A gritty morally vague manifesto of a film like Milston's All Quiet on the Western Front would have been given a glossier cinematic and less upsetting subject matter makeover, were it to be made even one year later. Self-censorship is always the most strict because it deals with what is desirable instead of what is allowed. What is appropriate for a crime film may simply not be appropriate for a war film in this logic, where capital makes as many demands as societal character or national security. By the mid-30s, shamefully, the major U.S. studios were taking cues from the German government about what were and what were not appropriate films to make based on what might not work in the German market, that is, upset Nazis. Needless to say, this would have made for a worse film, but also a return to fantasy would have met with an audience less willing to hear about heroism. Stop me if you've heard this one before. An inevitable but unexpected war breaks out, and what seems like it should be a brief conflict drags out, dividing what would normally be the pacifist left, into nationalist tribes that offer nothing to the working classes but death. There is some residual shame at work there. By 1929, the idea that the First World War was the conflict to end all conflicts had already faded and that the globe was rife with rising conflict and gilded lay of inequality were building rapidly. But the shock of World War I as a useless war hung heavy. Masses of people who participated in the war felt tricked, cheated, and lied to. They were both an obvious and enthusiastic audience for the novel and the film, and they made it an instant classic. This film was intended to be an antidote to all the war narratives that had come before, the blustering, warmongering farces that we came to re-embrace after the good war that is World War II. In fact, it wasn't until the late 1970s that another attempt was made at All Quiet on the Western Front, this time by Delbert Mann, starring Richard Thomas and Ernest Borgnine. Unlike the 1930s version, it is closely modeled on the order and events—sorry, much like the 1930s version—it is closely modeled on the order and events as presented in the book. It feels very much like the version you study in American schools, with the exact quotes you remember giving the exact prominence in the scenes where you believe that they should be. Although the aesthetics of the 1970s shine through in the occasional off-putting Zoom, the technical advances of of the era are put to good use in the story. It is able to be more choppy and to take us more seamlessly from the violence of the front to the forced stillness back home in a more rapid way than 1930s viewership allowed. It also won several awards when it came out. The ages of the suffering youth are more accurately represented. Germany will be empty soon, a veteran opines, observing the 16-year-olds, now played by real 16-year-olds, being sent to the front. This is a post-Vietnam film. After the American withdrawal from Vietnam, there was a widespread feeling across the U.S. that all military adventures were hopeless, ideologically corrupt quagmires. This fed into a narrative of national malaise and a decade of American decline. This leads itself to a certain softest. That, uh, sorry, this lends itself to a certain softness that again is maybe only possible to apply a story that is ostensibly about foreigners. But in this version of the story, everyone is human. Everyone is in one way or another doing their best. That hated training corporal, Himmelstoss, nurtures great pain. The schoolmaster, who specializes in molding the minds of the young to want to war, knows what he is doing, but seemingly doesn't know what else to do. A novel may contain many moments when subtext becomes text. A movie is usually allowed only one. The moment of subtext as text in the 1930s film is when Paul silently vows to take on the profession of the French soldier he has just killed in a smoking crater. In the man version, that honor is given to a scene on the home front, which may be more appropriate to a nation that had just fought a war watching on television sets in their living rooms and not fighting in person. The mother of Paul's dead comrade asks him the only question that matters. Why are you alive and why is my son dead? The Netflix version of All Quiet on the Western Front doesn't elevate these same moments from the novel. It includes many of these scenes but hammers a different narrative that is more visually arresting, albeit sometimes stylish, in that cheap Netflix way. One wonders if the typical German school report on the book is told slightly differently. We are treated to more political specifics than we would be. The Social Democrats will be the end of all mankind is a a line that hits satisfyingly. But many other matters are treated brusquely or not dealt with at all. The lack of emphasis on the home front and the breaking of perspective undermine the very premise of the novel in a way that is perplexing and even a bit upsetting to those not looking for a traditional war movie. Nature and war are tackled particularly engagingly. The desaturated gray mud of the front is striking and sickening. It feels like the post-industrial wasteland promised in the wasteland. The trip to the front shows new narrative at work here, the devolution from civilization to barbarity rather than the intermixing of the two. The visual descent to the front from Technicolor to an almost graphic novel, black and white, comes complete with details other productions can't compete with. The trees themselves are strewn with bodies. It is, and this will be a strange connection, reminiscent of the highways in Godard's Weekend from 1967. Fires and bodies and bad feelings in a world that is out of control. All the films drive precision, but the Netflix version has that extra layer that is the hallmark of popular culture post-9-11. That is technical realism rather than the dramatic and psychological realism of the first two adaptations. The vehicles, weapons, and uniforms are displayed in such a way as to invite you to examine them in Wikipedia. The higher truth of the monotony of war so present in the novel is broken up by a parade of interesting tanks, flamethrowers to make you sure that you know that they know all the podcast-ready details about the arms and armor of the age. Security apparatus have shared case files and technical details with filmmakers since the 1920s and J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uh, since its inception. But post-2008, these exchanges have become such a regular contrivance of any historical drama that can be better understood as a genre than as a choice in 2022. It is in this manner the security state has sought to control the subject matter of war and police stories by setting the boundaries of what really happens to people who know their stuff. This commitment to the narrative of order dissolving into chaos changes some of the classic elements of the story. The classroom has turned into more of a standing fascist lecture hall, robbing it of the intimate relationship that makes the death-inducing advice the boys get there not only sinister but systemic. It is also shown once rather than repeatedly. From an aesthetic standpoint, an off-putting element happens in the soundtrack where periodic squeals of electronic music take the audience out of the time and place of the story of the story that so much attention has been used to keeping authentic. It feels like a film divided against itself. Some of these additions are welcome, and fewer are interestingly done, but the Netflix adaptations are uh, sorry some of these additions are welcome, and fewer are interestingly done. But the Netflix adaptation suffers when it tries to add historical context to the peace negotiations. By elevating the drama around the peace negotiations and then weaving the death of Cat and Paul, our final two standing characters, in a heightened and even heroic manner, the film was robbed of the power of its thesis that war is arbitrary. All Quiet on the Western Front famously refers to the dispatch issued on the day Paul is killed, because the death of him and his comrades is not even a blip on the radar of the mass calamity that is the First World War. To miss this is unforgivable and ruins the effect of the narrative. Realism demands more than attention to historical detail. It demands that we portray indifference with the same drama and villainy, because that is the subtext of every war story worth telling, that we are all afraid to die. And in war, we all perish for the same reasons, to make someone whose life is not on the line some money. <speaking in Spanish> Sladoled, za sve generacije za svagodišnja doba. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening. program in our third series for more global entertainment from the committee program click on the video screen right or screen left please like and subscribe to the committee program on sundays at 4 pm eastern and 10 pm central european time